Heavenly Father, thank you that you've been speaking to us this week. Thank you for thrilling us afresh with the wonder of the Lord Jesus. And we want that thrill to work its way out into daily life, that we might be people who live his life, live his love, live for his glory. And so as we get to some nitty-gritty practicalities this morning, we pray that you would help us to be people who are not just hearers of the word, but also doers. For your glory's sake. Amen. One of the most extraordinary films I've seen in the last year, it was actually um, shown one of the evenings at Cornerstone last year, but I didn't manage to get to it then. Um, I don't have a clip of it this time because actually the, the bit I want to talk about is quite hard to get a, a clip for. But um, the film is Into the Wild. And it's uh, based on a true story of uh, an American uh, young man called Christopher McCandless. Um, and it was a film written and directed by Sean Penn. And um, I don't know why I was surprised, but I was surprised that it is actually a remarkably beautiful, brilliantly written, and superbly paced film. Basically, uh, he was a man um, who went searching for himself, for life, for meaning, for reality. And he's experienced the agony of being let down by many people, and he's sickened by the sort of consumerist materialism and the absurdities of modern life, especially as he's seen it within his own family and uh, his, particularly his abusive and very difficult father played uh, remarkably by William Hurt. And so he gives it all up without telling anybody. He just gives it all up. He just walks away. He gives his life savings that his parents have been keeping for him. Uh, he's just graduated from college, uh, graduated uh, summa cum laude with great brilliance. Uh, and I can't remember exactly the figure. is about $23,000 that he had as his savings. Basically, he just gives it all to Oxfam, writes a check for the whole amount to Oxfam. He cuts up his uh, credit cards. He burns his ID and driving license. He burns any cash that he has on him, and he walks away with nothing except the backpack uh, that he carries. He leaves everything behind without telling uh, even his sister, with whom he's very close, and certainly not his parents. And his goal is the wastelands of Alaska. And uh, the film is sort of told in flashbacks from, um, it starts with him arriving in this sort of completely deserted area in the wilderness of Alaska. And there's sort of flashbacks through the film, uh, you know, going, uh, recounting different people that he's met along the journey. Uh, and then there are flashbacks to his um, uh, childhood home and the, the, the sort of oppressiveness of that. And uh, he says a number of extraordinary things along the way. He says this at one point. Some people feel like they don't deserve love. They walk away quietly into empty spaces, trying to close the gaps of the past. And then to someone else he's met on the journey, he tries to explain something of his philosophy. This is a, a wonderful uh, old man who's uh, been long widowed, and he just sort of uh, works out in his leather working shop, uh, doing, making belts and things. And basically, he encounters uh, Chris, and uh, they become firm friends, and 
Uh, and they're, they're talking about various things, and, and Chris has said that he's going to be moving on soon. And uh, uh, the old guy says, I, I'm going to miss you. And Chris says to him, I'll miss you too. But you're wrong if you think that the joy of life comes principally from the joy of human relationships. God's place is all around us, he says. It is in everything and in everything we can experience. People just need to change the way they look at things. We're wrong to find our joy in human relationships. Well, in the flashbacks on Chris's life, you can see why he thinks that's wrong, because very few of his relationships have brought any joy at all, just pain and agony. But by the end of the film, and I, I won't spoil it for you, but after months of solitude in some of the most beautiful landscapes on earth, he comes to his greatest discovery of all. For he learns that happiness is only real when shared. He spent his whole life running away from people. And the agony of the end of the film is that he realizes he was running the wrong way. It's hugely ironic, painfully ironic. He's escaped from people to find happiness in God's awesome creation. He's had good reason to do so, and it's not hard to imagine uh, that he, he's onto something. After all, if you've sat sweltering on the central line day in, day out, uh, you know, the sort of wilderness of Alaska seems like heaven. But his root problem, you see, was not urbanization or materialism, or the fact that he's been badly let down by people. His root problem is one that we all share. We do not function well in isolation. It was the first not good in the great goods of creation, wasn't it? Uh, all these things in Genesis 1, God kept on saying, and it was good, and it was good. And the biggest shock of the Bible so far in Genesis 2 is when suddenly says, it is not good. Hang on. He's made this all. Why there, why, how can there be something not good? Well, it's not good to be alone. We're not made to be alone. We don't function well alone. We need not to be alone. But that leads to a sort of catch-22, doesn't it? Because the agony of Chris's situation is he, he can't live with other people, but he can't live without other people. Well, of course, it's only a catch-22 in a fallen world. What if there was a way? What if there was a way to deal with the heart of the problem, the very thing that makes community so difficult? What if there was a way of dealing with that problem so that then community could work? Well, of course, that's precisely what the Lord Jesus has come to do, to root out sin, because sin is the biggest impediment to community, to life together. Happiness is only real when shared. But the agony is that when we do share, so often we find pain. You see, salvation, or being saved, or whatever you want to call it, is never individualistic in the Bible. It's never me, me, me. It's always us, 
And that's certainly the case in John's Gospel. I want to focus on three famous passages, briefly, I'm afraid. But I want to see how the three of them, very, very wonderful passages that, you know, each would require uh, hours just of digging and swimming around in. Uh, but, um, but I want to sort of put them together in a sort of fresher way to be able to see how actually these build together to show what true community and what true happiness being shared is really like. So what, I'll, what we'll see, I think, is if I can adapt the phrase slightly, is not only that is happiness only real when shared, but so too is holiness only real when shared. Because actually, it's quite hard to be holy on your own. It's very hard to be loving on your own. In fact, you can't. Because if you're on your own, the only person to love is yourself. And being like God, you see, is at the very heart of what it is to be in relationship with him and with others. For God is love, as we've seen. And love is only real when shared. Love is not shared. Love that is not shared is its opposite. It's sin. But before we look at the three passages, let's just sort of bring a few things together and remember where it all begins. Because it's clear from the start, you see, conversion, at the very least... It is about adoption into the family. Remember again uh, from the prologue. What has the word come to do for those who receive and believe him? Well, back in the prologue, he came to give the right to become children of God. That's what he came for. He came to create a family, a new family, to bring new members of this family. And he gives them the privilege of being the family of God. Because God is the God of family. I'm not saying he's the God of families, that actually if you don't um, have children or you're not married, you can't be in this family. That's nonsense. No, the whole church is the family of God because each one of us individually, one by one, is a child of God if we have received the word, namely the Lord Christ. For think about it. It is essential to God's Trinitarian identity that one God is one person Father, one person Son, one person Spirit. In a sense, you could say the Trinity himself is a family. Father, Son, and Spirit. So in a sense, being the body of Christ, being God's family here, is a true reflection of the wonderful dynamic relationship of love within the Godhead himself. And we relate to God the Father as a result of the God the Son. And we relate and brought to the Son as a result of the work of his Spirit, convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and blowing like the wind. You can't see where the wind goes, but you can see the results as new lives spring up all over the place. I think I mentioned at a prayer gathering a few weeks ago how um, I'd been emailed by this guy in Iran. He found my blog. He'd been searching for Christian things, and um, uh, basically, I, his English wasn't brilliant, and my Farsi doesn't exist. Um, so, praise the Lord, I could put him in touch with Amir Aryan. Remember Amir, who's a regular member at Cornerstone, and uh, he's now leading Farsi work in Ealing. And so Amir was able to communicate with him by internet and stuff. And basically, uh, this guy, um, Mohabat, is a bodybuilder from Tehran. How cool is that? <laughs> Um, 
I didn't think I'd have much in common with a Tehran bodybuilder, um, but he and his wife, he actually said on the, 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 the sort of um, Skype chat we were having, I hate Islam, I, I, I can't cope with it anymore, I want Jesus. And he and his wife have come to know the Lord through the internet, through finding things on YouTube. And Amir is now in regular touch and discipling him over Skype. There isn't a church in his town. He's about uh, half an hour north of Tehran. But new life. You can't see where the spirit goes, but you can see his results springing up. How extraordinary is that? And uh, what, what have we seen about this love? Well, it's love for the whole world, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's our spiral again. But it's also love for all nations. This is interesting. We looked at uh, Caiaphas's prophecy, unwitting prophecy yesterday. But let's just, let me just refresh your memories. This is what John says about Caiaphas's unwitting prophecy. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. It's fascinating, isn't it? He's clearly talking about Gentiles there, because he's talking about the Jewish nation and other nations that he calls the scattered children of God. And out of this extraordinary diversity, he brings them together and makes them one. So suddenly, I have everything in the world in common with a Tehran bodybuilder. I do go to the gym occasionally, but I don't think I'll ever aspire to being a bodybuilder. Or as Jesus said in chapter 12, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is what God is like. He is love. And he adopts people into his family. As someone once said, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. You don't inherit faith. You make it your own. So the funny thing is, I've, I've sort of found myself you know, sometimes sort of idly not thinking about it, talking to Joshua, my son, and, and maybe it's because I've been around Rico quite a lot, but I started calling him, bro, bro. <laughs> hey, bro. <laughs> but, but there's a sense in which, um, and I, you know, Joshua seems to be having a, a living faith, it's early to say, but there is a sense in which he's my son, but he's also my brother. And that's rather wonderful. It's a gift of God, the God no one has seen but one has made visible. But it never stops there. We're born again into a new family, a great family, a divine family, and we worship together as a family. So remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman by the well. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not, who, what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, yet... A time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. We have a family relationship with our Father. 
And worship, of course, is, is singing, yes, but not just. Worship is giving him his worth our whole lives as his family. He says nothing about doing this on your own, although we should do it on our own. It's always you will come together and be one. If you're a Westerner like me, that's something that does not come naturally. Many cultures find it a lot easier than we do, and we've got a lot to learn. Um, this is a remarkable quotation from a man called Dinah Zulu, who was the king of the Zulus. Uh, there's a photo, an actual photograph of him taken in 1910. He wrote this. A man who is isolated and alone can be regarded as a sort of discarded person. He is a man cast out of society, and that type of man in the old days would have been killed. Let me say this, and I say it very seriously. There is nothing worse than being isolated. Now, what is so poignant about that is that the British exiled him to the island of St. Helena for seven years because of insurrection when he led the Zulus against the British, which was, of course, the same island that Napoleon had been exiled to. There is nothing worse than being isolated, as he was for seven long years. We Westerners have much to learn from you who have a more corporate understanding. We're so ingrained to think in terms of me, myself, and I, that actually we need to be deliberate about thinking differently. We need to actually do it on purpose. So it's, it's fascinating how many songs we sing about me and I, and I just want to. And sometimes, even if it doesn't quite scan I don't, or rhyme, I don't really care. Sometimes in my mind, I deliberately change it to we and us, just to remind me that it's not just about me. We need to completely change our thinking. Uh, a, a remarkable book is uh, the book An Anthro Anthropologist on Mars, written by the neurologist Oliver Sacks. He was the guy who wrote Awakenings and The Man Who Must Stick His Wife for a Hat. Absolutely fascinating guy. Um, and he speaks about a man called Virgil who had been blind from childhood. When he was 50, Virgil underwent surgery and was given the gift of sight. But as he and Dr. Sachs found out, having the physical capacity for sight is not the same thing as seeing. Virgil's first experiences with sight after 50 years were very confusing. He was able to make out colors and movements, but arranging them into a coherent picture was much more difficult. Over time, he learned to identify individual objects, but his habits, his behaviors, were all still those of a blind man. He hadn't learned how to use his new sense. And Dr. Sachs put it like this, one must die as a blind person to be born again as a seeing person. It is the interim, the limbo, that is so terrible and difficult. Well, we must die as an individualist and be born again as a member of the family. And now that we can see the light of the world, we must learn what to think of ourselves to think of ourselves differently, as members of a body, as brothers and sisters in a family, as exiles brought home, as diverse people united. You need to do that deliberately. It won't come naturally. 
So let's think of these three, look at these three passages to help us do that. The first is the foot washing. And I call this cleansed to love. Cleansed to love. Now, chapter 13, verse 1, absolutely blew me away. I probably read it zillions of times, but I'd never really noticed it. At first sight, it doesn't look that inspiring, but listen. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and to go to his father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. that last bit the full extent of his love here's yet another on of, uh, of uh, John's word plays because when John says he showed the full extent of his love the literal meaning of the Greek words is to the last or to the uttermost to the end completely the word is teleos complete full he gave everything he could and here now, in John 13, he's going to give the lot. He's going to give everything he's got to give. Or rather, he's going to give them a picture of it. Because what happens next? You think, hang on, is that the full extent of his love? What is this? And yet, that's how John introduces this extraordinary, spine-tingling moment. It is love to the uttermost, as we'll see. Of course, in verse 2, the drumbeat of opposition that we were thinking about is still there. Uh, Jesus uh, is imminently going to be betrayed by, Jesus, uh, by, by Judas. So verse 2, the evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. So the drumbeat of opposition, the tolling of the hour, is getting louder and louder. But then verse 3 speaks of something else imminent. Just notice how John puts this in verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Do you get a sense of imminent grandeur, majesty? This is a sort of a momentous you know, sort of ringing the bell, wake up, something big is about to happen. Jesus is about to return to his father. He has been given all power from his father. Something big is about to happen. So, verse 4, he got up from the meal, took off his coat, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Huh? It's not what you'd expect next, isn't it? You expect something grand, momentous, awe-inspiring. Everybody's going to stop. Mouths gaped open. This is, this is God at work. And he gets a towel, and he wraps it around his waist. This is God at work. The great commentator F.F. F. Bruce put it like this. The form of God was not exchanged for the form of a servant. The form of God was revealed in the form of a servant. Let me say that again. The form of God was not exchanged for the form of servant. a servant. He didn't stop being God when he became a slave. No, when he became a slave, he showed what God's really like. 
And Jesus gives us two reasons why he does this. The first is that it is symbolic of his service, of his service at the cross. It's a visual, experiential aid for what he does for us. It's actually quite confusing exactly what he means here, but the main point is clear. I mean, he sort of weaves in and out one or two concepts and ideas, and I don't have time to unpack them all. But, but the most important thing is that Jesus is offering us a symbol of what he's about to do at the cross. It's love to the uttermost. So verse 10, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. You see, it's a once and for all act to be cleansed or born again or to be given the right of being a child of God. A once and forever act. But we need daily foot washing because we still sin. And this is the reality of any community we know full well that sin is a reality amongst the born again. Sin has been a reality at Cornerstone. We know that. We've all said and done and thought things we regret and are ashamed of, me included. There have been one or two people I've been a bit too sort of abrupt and short with this week. I apologize. I'm sorry. No excuses. We all have. But one thing is clear, that if we are Christ's, if we are sons and daughters of God, that have the right to that title, we're clean. That's what the cross will do. But it's not only symbolic of his service. Interestingly, it's also symbolic of our service. So he says in uh, verse 12, do you understand what I've done for you? Well, it's pretty hard to understand what he's done for us because it's the last thing they were expecting. You know, this was the sort of thing that slaves, actually slaves, weren't even expected to do. They were expected to sort of offer all kinds of help and hospitality support and everything else. But washing somebody's feet, well, that really is the most menial of them all. So do you understand what I've been doing? No wonder Peter objected. He goes on to say, verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that's what I am. Yep, that's correct. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. I tell you the truth. No slave is greater than his owner, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you can't say you didn't know. You'll be blessed if you do them. This, you see, is to be the hallmark of the community life of the redeemed. We are to wash one another's feet. Now, it's fascinating, isn't it, how the churches down the centuries have turned this, something that is such a sort of menial, humiliating act, uh, that is a symbol of absolute self-giving love, has turned it into a ritual with all kinds of pomp and ceremony on Maundy Thursday. And they make great show of how the bishop of the diocese will get down on his hands and knees and wash the feet of some poor minion in the diocese who's, you know, obviously for the rest of the year just ignored and, and away from stray and everything else. But, you know, on Monday, Thursday, we'll get down and wash their feet. And isn't that marvelous? And we've done our job then. Now, I'm being a bit harsh, but only a bit. 
We've turned what is to be a hallmark of our life into a ritual that you can do in five minutes. Now, sometimes I've been in situations where actually we've had a sort of uh, gone through the ritual of washing one another's feet, and that's been quite powerful, and I think, you know, why not? But don't for one minute think that if you've washed somebody's feet, you've loved them. But to get something of the impact of what has happened here, I'm going to read, read you a bit of a story. I don't have a film clip or a song, but I'm going to read you a story today. So are you sitting comfortably? I'm sorry about these chairs. I have the advantage of not having to sit on it, standing here. Um, you've got to sit there, and you've got to listen to me. I'm terribly sorry. Um, but I'm going to read a couple of pages from Alan Payton's book, Ah, But Your Land is Beautiful. He was famous... Uh, he came to sort of public attention for writing Cry the Beloved Country about South Africa under apartheid. And you'll probably know that. It was made into a film. Um, uh, you can't quite see it, but anyway, it's called Ah, But Your Land is Beautiful. And this is set in the mid-1950s, soon after the dreaded 1952 pass laws were introduced, laws which made it a criminal offense for a black person not to carry ID and, uh, uh, and made it uh, practically impossible to move freely around the country. And in the book, uh, One Easter Time in Holy Week, a pastor called Isaiah Booty invites a white Supreme Court Chief Justice to visit his church. And he does so because uh, one of the um, members of the congregation, long-standing member of the congregation, uh, is actually a servant of this Chief Justice. And uh, he's got to know the judge quite well, and he seems to be something of a righteous man. And so the pastor invites him to the church. On the evening of the day before Good Friday, Judge Olivier set out privately for the Holy Church of Zion in Bocabella. He parked his car near the church and set out to walk the short distance. The judge was welcomed at the door by Mr. Booty and was taken to a seat at the back of the church. I'm sorry to put you at the back, judge, but, but I don't want Martha to see you. Then the service began. Brothers and sisters, this is the night of the Last Supper. And when the supper was over, Jesus rose from the table and put a towel round himself, as I do now, in remembrance of him. Hannah, Martha King, I ask you to come forward. The old woman was brought forward by her son, Jonathan, a white-haired man of 70. And Mr. Booty washed her feet and dried them and told her to go in peace. Then he called for Esther Malloy, the crippled child, who was brought forward in her chair. And he called for Maria Booty, his own daughter, who washed and dried Esther's feet. Then both girls were told to go in peace. Martha Fortone, I ask you to come forward. So Martha, who, was 30, who 30 years earlier had gone to work in the home of the newly married advocate Olivier of Bloemfontein and had gone with him to Cape Town and Pretoria when he became a judge and had returned with him to Bloemfontein when he became a justice of the Appellate Court, now left her seat to walk to the chair before the altar. She walked with her head downcast, as becomes a modest and devout woman, conscious of the honor that had been done her by the Reverend Isaiah Booty. 
Then she heard him call out the name of Jan Christian Olivier. And though she was herself silent, she heard the gasp of the congregation as the great judge of Bloemfontein walked up to the altar to wash her feet. Then Mr. Booty gave the towel to the judge and the judge, as the word says, girded himself with it and took the dish of water and knelt, knelt at the feet of Martha. He took her right foot in his hands and washed it and dried it with his towel. Then he took both her feet in his hands with gentleness, for they were no doubt tired after much years of serving. And he kissed them both. Then Martha Fortain and many others in the Holy Church of Zion fell a-weeping in that holy place. Then the judge gave the towel and the dish to Mr. Booty, who said to him, Go in peace. Mr. Booty put the shoes back on the woman's feet and said to her also, Go in peace. And she returned to her place in a church, silent, except for those who wept. If it was impressive for a Supreme Court judge to do that, how much more is it for the King of Kings? Such an act goes beyond words. It goes beyond understanding. No wonder the disciples confused. And yet it is no less than what we are called to do. And so now we come to the second image, the vine. Chapter 15. I'm sure you know that the vine is a very significant image in the Old Testament. It's a regularly used to describe the people of God, Israel. And what is the purpose of a vine? to produce fruit, to produce grapes for the vineyard owner. Well, Jesus appropriates the image in a very surprising way. Chapter 15, I, I am the true vine, and my father's the gardener. Chapter 15, verse 1. The people of Israel had never managed to live up to the expectations. They'd never lived up to the responsibilities of being God's vine. And so Jesus comes to do what they never could. I am the vine. He was the true vine who perfectly obeyed the Father and produced the fruit of righteous works for the gardener. And what has this got to do with us? Well, remember, if we're born again, if we are united with him, we are his family, and being united, well, the image that Jesus used is that of a vine. Verse 2, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. Now you look at that and you think, yikes, am I in danger of being cut off? It's rather a threatening verse, isn't it? It's rather intimidating, but notice how belonging begins. Because of his word, because of his word, because of his 
grace. So he says uh, in verse 3, he's the one who makes it happen. He says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Well, we had that in chapter 13. You are clean. And if you are clean, you are his. I just put in the box there a number of things that John describes that God has done for us. Have a look through them and be encouraged. Maybe go through them and thank God for each one. Lord, you've done this for me. You've done this and this. And the responsibility we have? To bear fruit. To be holy. I mean, that's what vineyards do. And what does that mean? Well, three things here. We are lifeless without a connection. We can't be Christian without Christ. It's as simple as that. I mean, it's, it's, it's the clue's in the name, isn't it? Christian. Ooh, Christ, Ian. Verse 4, remain in me and I'll remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. You getting the idea? Verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. You've got to remain in me. You got the idea? You've got to remain in me. Is it, is it clear yet? Remain in me, Jesus, the Christ. Remain in him. Okay, you getting the idea? And the agricultural image is a powerful one, isn't it? It's obvious. It's the difference between life and death when you think about it. A branch disconnected from the tree trunk with its sap and its roots is doomed. It'll wither and die. So put it in the context of John's spiraling purpose. Remain in me. Well, that's about believing in him, trusting in him. Why? Because then you'll have life. The signs point to the fact that the Christ is Jesus. So remain in him by believing and trusting in him. Then you'll have life. And so we go round our spiral. That's how we have eternal life. So, so the challenge is clear. It's impossible to be Christian without Christ. But here's the rub. This is the really crucial thing. It's not any Christ. It's not any Christ that you might like. There are a lot of Christs out there. I don't know whether you'd noticed. There are a lot of Christs. They use biblical language. They seem to talk the talk, but they are not the Christ. Let me give you an example. There's the best buddy Christ, who's a friend when we're in trouble or lonely. There's the therapeutic Christ, who solves all your biggest problems. There's the churchy Christ, who wants you to go to church and do churchy things. There's the social revolutionary Christ, who's more concerned for social change than personal holiness. There's the spiritual guru Christ who gives me spiritual, private spiritual guidance but doesn't interfere with my everyday life. And so on and so forth. Now, actually, in nearly all of those, there are elements of truth. That's why they're so appealing. Yes, he is our friend. Yes, he does answer our prayers. Yes, he does want social change and personal holiness. Yes, he does want us to meet together as his church, the body. So there's something in all of those things, but make joy well sure that the Christ you worship is the Christ presented in the scriptures, above all the Christ presented in John's gospel. Measure the Christ you believe in against the word that he has revealed. Not the one you might quite like, but the one who really is. Not the Christ of our imagination, the Christ who is the Son of God, who condemns sin but dies on our behalf as the Lamb of God and is the only way, the truth, and the life through whom we come to the Father and by no one else. 
But you see, if you think about it, if we don't stick with him, how on earth can we expect to have life? We're like a branch cut off from the sap and the roots. So it's lifeless without a connection. Secondly, it's pointless without fruit. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I always think, I, this is probably going to be unhelpful, but I always think of the Keith Green song. You remember Keith Green? In one of his songs, he says, I am divine and you are the branches. Ha <laughs> 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 ha. Um, but the whole point is to bear fruit. We can't bear fruit without Jesus. It's like Paul in Ephesians referring to the works that God has prepared for us to do in advance. This is the fruit that the life-giving sap of his spirit that flows through us produces. There's no point being a vine if you don't produce fruit. So what does that mean? Well, the fruit, I think in the context of what we've been thinking about today, is love. As he says in verse 9, Remain in my love, which means live out his love. And you can't love on your own. And he actually says we'll be loveless and joyless without obedience. You see, there's a common assumption that love is an emotion, isn't there? And that uh, uh, it's certainly true that love is emotional, but Christian love at its heart is not an emotion. Look at verse 10. If you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Just imagine what would happen if the Son had not obeyed the Father. We would have never had someone to die for us. We would still be in our sins. If at that precious, agonized moment in Gethsemane, when Jesus said, no, my will, not yours, there wouldn't have been a cross. But he showed his love for the Father by saying, no, not my will, but yours. You see, you love by obeying. If you don't obey, it implies you don't care or you think you know better. That's how we're to show our love for him. That's how we're to show our love for his people, by love. That's what the foot washing is all about, you see. It's a challenge to love like him. But more than that, it's not just an example to follow. It's a command to obey. This is the new commandment, that you love one another. That's how we show love. But you see, this is not cold, calculating, oppressive obedience. This is not submission to some almighty Allah. This is, well, look at verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. There is joy in this. And that is hugely emotion. Jesus is not against emotions. He's not British. But notice it's not a matter of pursuing emotional highs. It's about loving him by obeying him, out of which will flow great joy. But I can tell you, at points sometimes when you have to obey him, you feel emotionally like running a million miles away. The last thing you want to do is to obey. 
And that is exactly what the Lord Jesus felt. He wanted to be a million miles away. But not my will, but yours. You see, we talk about loving Jesus in our songs a lot. And there's a sort of genre, a type of Christian song that is a sort of love song. I mean, that's basically the genre of music that it's come out of. And that's okay, and we are to sing love songs to him. Some, some of the psalms are love songs. I don't have a problem with that per se. However, if we're not careful, we just sort of begin to think that actually, if I want to show my love for him, all I need to do is to sing a soppy song. No, we can't love Jesus without obeying him. But here's the twist. We obey him by loving others. By washing their feet. By giving them drink when they're thirsty. By giving them a bed when they're homeless. By visiting them when they're in prison. By feeding them when they're hungry. By being a shoulder to cry on when they're depressed. That's how we love Jesus. We can't be obedient, you see, without actually belonging. You may have heard there's been a bit of a hoo-ha recently. You know the, the, the author of Interview with the Vampire, Anne Rice. I mentioned her in church a few weeks back. Uh, she's written a number of novels about vampires and about 10 years ago famously sort of publicly came back to church to her Catholic roots. And she said in public just a few weeks ago, published it on her Facebook page, and I think she had over 2,000 like clicks of people who thought that she was saying something wonderful. She said, basically, I'm rejecting the church because they're a bunch of arrogant, hypocritical, nasty pieces of work. But I'm going to keep following Jesus. I totally understand why she felt that. Totally understand why she felt that. I'm a minister. I know. But you can't do that. <laughs> But we've got to make sure that as a church, we don't give the Anne Rices of this world any room to do or think like that. We've got to prove her wrong, not by saying you can follow Jesus without his people, but to say his people follow Jesus and therefore it's great to be with them. This is what Philip Yancey wrote about Christ's love. He said, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Sinners liked being with him and longed for his company. Meanwhile, legalists found him shocking, even revolting. What on earth was Jesus' secret that we've lost? Do sinners actually like being with you? Because they loved being with Jesus. So we come to Jesus' final prayer, his so-called high priestly prayer. And don't have time for detail, just cover it just in a few minutes. But it's fascinating. This is the most extensive of Jesus' own prayers in the Gospel accounts. And uh, we don't sort of get to listen in, you know, let to sort of look over his shoulder, if you like, as he's praying. Uh, but this is one occasion where we do. And uh, it's in a remarkable passage, John 17. And uh, he prays in, for all kinds of things. And it's fascinating to see what his priorities are. He prays for, well, the unity of love. 
First of all, he prays for God's glory. He prays for his Father to be glorified through him, which will come about through his death on the cross. That is the climax of his ministry in John's Gospel. But the focus, isn't it fascinating? But this is Jesus through and through, isn't it? As he's about to die, the focus of his prayer is not himself, but those he's dying for. He's thinking about those who will be plunged into darkness. Do you remember he said that the night is coming? The light will be extinguished, or so it seems. And he's praying for his people as they face the horror of seeing the light extinguished. But what does he pray for? Well, I've just picked out three things amongst other things. And the first is distinctiveness. Now, a friend of mine, a chap called James, Jason Ramasamy, has, uh, I was just in touch with him. I said, hey, how about drawing me a few cartoons? And he has, and you've got them on the booklets. Um, and I just asked him to try and illustrate the interesting dynamic you have about our distinctiveness. So have a look at chapter 17, verse 4. And... Uh, Uh, blah, 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 blah. Did I mean verse 4? Oh, blow. Did I mean verse 14? Uh, that's interesting. It was going so well. Mm-hmm. Do I mean 6? That's it, verse 6. Thank you very much. I have revealed you to those who you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So basically, he has plucked us out of the world. We've been given to Christ. We belong to him. We are his body. And then verse 14, Jesus prays, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Okay? Basically, we've changed sides. We've gone from darkness into light. We are now out of the world, and we belong to him. However, here's the twist, verse 15. My prayer is not that you should take them out of the world. Hang on. He's just taken us out of the world. But my prayer is that you don't take them out of the world. Well, what is it? Well, verse 18 my prayer is that uh, they are sanctified. I've sent them into the world. And what will he do in the midst of it? Verse 15, he prays that you protect them in the world. So we're taken out of the world, just as Jesus is taken out of the world. We belong to him and not the world. But we are still in the world. We're surrounded by the world. But that's not a disaster, even though it's a threat, because God has promised and Jesus has prayed to protect us. Sometimes people come to me and ask, um, oh, you're a minister, will you pray for me? As if that will make a difference. Not, not the praying bit, but the fact that I'm a minister. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm very happy to pray for people. And I say, yeah, great, I'll do that. But you pray too. And, you know, any of these other people, they might be able to manage it as well. There's nothing special about getting a minister to pray for you. But when the Christ prays for you, now that is different. It's an incredible encouragement, isn't it, to know that the Lord, the Christ, is praying for you? That you'd be protected in the world? 
in the world but not of it. Isn't that an encouragement? So it means that when we come to him in prayer asking for protection, we know that actually it's on his heart. Secondly, he prays for unity. The next paragraph is interesting because uh, Jesus is anticipating the great global missionary advance, the great movement of the gospel. And he anticipates the inclusion of brothers and sisters from all the countries of the world, uh, just as Anna was talking about in her seminar on the first evening. People all around the world coming to know Christ. And because of this diversity, well, there's no surprise what he prays for. It's going to be very necessary, this prayer. Look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. You must realize the foundation of this unity. It's not just a vain wish on Jesus' part. He's praying for our unity to be an expression of what we are already. Be what you are. You are one, so be one. And that's the rather mind-boggling reality of the next few verses. Verse 21, they may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe in you, that you have sent me. And basically, Jesus is describing here the most secure and overwhelming embrace in history. We are swept up in the dynamic of Trinitarian love. The Father is in Jesus. Jesus is in the Father. We are in the Father and the Son. Eastern Orthodox uh, Christians talk about this as a perichoresis, which is a Greek word, which means it's a dance around, dancing around the dynamic of Trinitarian love, being other person-centered in a constant dance the dance of the Trinity. And the wonder of the gospel is that we are swept in like some huge Scottish reel to dance with the Trinity forever. The Father is in Jesus. Jesus is in the Father. We are in the Father and the Son together in love and dynamic unity. How can we be divided from people who are embraced in the same way as us? That is sacrilege. There is no excuse for disunity for those who trust him. There's a book on the bookstall I'd love you to, to read. There are only a few copies here, but uh, Christopher Rash, it's called uh, Remaking a Broken World. I've banged on about it rather a lot recently, but for good reason. I think it is a wonderful book. It's a Bible overview tracing the themes of gathering and scattering people from Genesis to Revelation. I read it in a weekend. I couldn't put it down. It was absolutely brilliant. Get hold of it. Sell your shirt, as long as you've got another shirt to wear, because that would be awkward. <laughs> Finally, he prays for divine love. Jesus pledges to make the Father known to his people. We know the Father through his Son, as we've seen before, but I love his parting shot, verse 26. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I, may be my, I myself may be in them. Wouldn't it be amazing if the first thing people notice whenever they joined All Souls is not its size, 
not its diversity, not its music, not its preaching, but its love. Because then they will know that the Lord Jesus is here. The center, the heartbeat of the Lord, of Yahweh, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the heartbeat is not the morning prayer meetings, although they're a jolly good thing, is love. It's not soppy. It's not the sort of thing, you know, conservative evangelicals avoid because we're just interested in the word. This is God. This is who we are. This is who we should be. This is who we jolly well ought to be. But this is what the Lord Christ died for us to be. Let me sum up with the words of a courageous South African theologian called David Bosch, who's a remarkable man, who uh, wrote a very influential book that's one of the most important books on mission written in the 20th century called Transforming Mission. Um, I had to read it when I was at college, and it's a remarkable book. I know it's been very influential on Chris Wright, for instance. And he was tragically killed in a car crash in 1992. Uh, but he had been very instrumental in working together with many different churches in South Africa to oppose the apartheid regime, even though he was a Dutch reform minister. And if you know anything about that context, you'll know that that was in itself quite a courageous thing to do. But he wrote this about what the church is, and with this I close. Can't really see it. I'll read it. The community of believers gathered by divine election, calling, new birth, and conversion which lives in communion with the triune God, is granted the forgiveness of sins and sent to the world in solidarity with all humanity. The church is a foreign body in the world. Without a faithful and sustained contact with God, the church loses her transcendence. Without a true solidarity with the world, she loses her relevance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may we be that people. May we love as you have loved us. May we wash one another's feet day in, day out. May we obey you to show our love. May we be different from the world, but united in you and filled with divine love. In Jesus' name, amen. Do we get to groups?